If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. John McLean is our guest today, and um, John is a regular guest on Horse Chats. And we're going to talk to Jonna today about 10 scientific facts about rewarding horses. So not just facts, because Jonna's a practitioner and he's a coach educator or he coaches and he's had a lifetime with horses, but he's also had a scientific background as well. And uh, we might give him a quick chat about how this is not just what he's done, but um, this is actual scientific research that he's backing on as well. So I'd like to introduce Jonna, but just before I do, I'd like to also remind you about International Horse College. So if you'd like to work in the horse industry, but not sure where to start, then have a chat to our friendly team at internationalhorsecollege.com. With the wide variety of horse courses, from complete beginner through to qualified professionals and students in over 20 countries, we'll be able to consider your individual requirements and guide you in the right direction. Simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com and start the conversation. Registered Training Organisation, 31352. Now, are you there, Jonna? Can you hear me? I can, I can. So, Jonna, I was just saying that we're going to be talking about rewarding horses today, and it's not just you as a practitioner and a coach who's developed this knowledge with the horses that you've worked with, but you've also got access to a lot of scientific background and a lot of scientifically proven ways about rewarding horses and um, the best way for horses to actually understand what we want. But just the first question would be, or would you like to even tell us a little bit about this scientific background and how you came to um, be, I suppose, a scientist as well as a practitioner? Okay, well, it all came about really by accident. It wasn't by design at all because obviously... My brother Andrew is one of the leading uh, investigators into the behavioural sciences of, of horses and also elephants. And so simply by being around Andrew, working with Andrew and Manu and um, them helping me understand really the science behind the sport really gave me a much more, can I say, intriguing understanding of the processes. So it wasn't just a case of saying, oh, this is what works, but it's actually why it works and how it works and when it works, and that was really valuable. So I've always always been interested in that side of things, even though, I, although other than my um, equitation science uh, qualification and um, a few other bits and pieces that are associated with that, that's really my scientific understanding came from um, being associated with um Andrew and his research papers and the development of Equitation Science International. So that's how it actually all started. And to this day, I can't say how much time that understanding the science has saved me, but also probably the most important thing is keeping the welfare of horses um, at, in mind, which is still an ongoing, ongoing process, and the safety of people is really paramount in this day and age because we need to be able to say where do we get our information from, how was it backed up, and what is the evidence for the support of this approach. And that underlines everything that I do. So, yeah, pretty much by accident all those things have happened. 
um, and having vast experiences, um, not just with equestrian horses, but also working overseas with people like Luki Kamani and the racing stables um, in Newmarket in England and, and various places and Indonesia and all sorts of places around the, around the world have given me access to how all this information then relates not just to the equestrian horse, but to the pleasure horse, to the show jumping horse, and also um, uh, to racing as well. And that's why I've been involved so much in the off the track program with um, three or four states around Australia, including New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something, you know, you talk about the welfare of horses, John. You know, the welfare of horses is not just about feeding and watering them. This is an important part of the welfare of horses so they actually understand and can grow and develop about this rewarding, you know, rewarding. We're going to go in a lot more in depth, but. So when we reward a horse, what is the best way to do this? It's a really big question. And the reward of a horse basically means that all you're trying to do is you're trying to illustrate to the horse that it has done the right thing. So it could be it could be a food reward. It could be the release of pressure. It could be scratching there are so many forms of of reward but it depends on the context that is most relevant to it so for example today i was working with a horse and illustrating and shooting some videos on when you have a horse that is not tied up but i had it through a ring and i had a lead rope and because i wasn't in front of the horse now i was looking at a post but it was through the ring to my hand because it was looking at a post it didn't know that it should step forward to release the pressure. But when I was in front of it, every single time it stepped forward. So the context in which we apply the reward is so relevant here, and that's why this topic is really important. Yep, yep. Now, sometimes do we reward a horse, or we think we're rewarding a horse, but to the horse it's actually meaningless? You know, like I know my my niece came in, you know, last week and she said, you know, her horse was so good when she rode him, I'm going to give him a carrot. Well, of course, she knows. She knows that, you know, that the carrot is meaningless. But how often does this happen that we reward the horse and to the horse that it's meaningless? I think we do it way too often. And this is part of the um, welfare strategies that will, you know, come down in the future is that if we're going to start thinking that we need to reward the horse, this is actually not about us being able to say, I'll give him some food and then he'll know he's done well. He, he can't know that he's done well because, you know, as you and I have discussed in, in previous interviews, that the timeliness of the reward is the key to the process. If you leave too much time, there's no association to the good behaviour. And this is the limiting factor on training and... and um, I was just speaking to somebody today that's involved or wants to be involved in the rehoming of racehorses. And the difficulty here is is that when we have people that want to do the right thing and their heart is in the right place, 100%, but because they don't understand that the horses um, only are going to relate to the reward if it's timely then it's a complete waste of time. And probably the most classic one, and I'll start on the most classic one, the classic one is the show jump rider jumping a metre 50, a metre 60 on a World Cup round, does really well, 
opens his arm up and slaps the horse quite quite a lot on the neck as he's actually gone across the uh, across the line, knowing full well that he's won the the competition and he's so exhilarated and he slaps the horse on the neck. That is completely meaningless to the horse. He's doing that either for his own ego or for PR. And that I have a I, that, that that's one of the areas that I have a problem with is because if people realised that a really good rub on the neck is far more valuable than a huge slap, um, is probably the first one that we need to make sure patting a horse, patting a dog, is actually a little bit traumatic if they don't associate the patting with something really positive. So in other words, if you want to pat your horse, you can pat your horse, but you're going to have to train it to associate it with something positive, and it could be food. If you haven't trained it, then it's actually detracting from the from the whole point, and the only beneficiaries of that are pretty much the people in the crowd and the media. Okay. So you've talked about food reward and scratching. Are there any other ways that we can reward the horse? I think you did you talk about release of pressure. So what are the different ways that we can reward a horse? Probably the most powerful way is in what we um, explain as negative reinforcement. And we have to we have to clarify a few things here because when I say the word negative and when I say the word positive, it's exactly the same as a battery. A positive is adding and a negative is the removal. So there's a reward in the application of and there can also be a reward in the removal of. So when we say negative reinforcement, it's not negative, it's not bad, and this is the one of the, um, can I say, the misnomers about um, the scientific uh, nomenclature of, of, of horse training, is people misunderstand that negative reinforcement is really negative and therefore it's bad but they don't understand because they haven't read between the lines or the definition of what negative reinforcement is. Negative reinforcement is the, is the removal of pressure, whatever it is, like you lead a horse and you ask him to lead forward and he does, so you reduce the pressure. That That's negative reinforcement at work. So, of course, when we ride a horse, 90% of all our work is all about negative reinforcement. We apply our leg aid, we apply pressure, and then the horse does what we want, and then we remove it. So um, can I say that negative reinforcement works simply by applying the pressure, and the horse knows that if he actually does the X, Y, Z with his legs or with his body, whatever he has to do, that as soon as he does that, the pressure will be removed, and so the reward is in the removal. So it's a three-stage process. It's actually a cue, first of all, a small detectable pressure, and if there's no response, then we apply the pressure and the pressure is applied. The horse does the action. And the instant the horse does the action, we remove it. We've talked about this a lot. So that's one way. And the other way is obviously when we do clicker training is that we mark the precise moment when the horse did the correct action with its leg or with its legs or with its body, whatever it is. And we click that as a marker, knowing full well that when the horse hears the clicker, it will have some positive rewards such as a carrot or a biscuit or a piece of grass or whatever it may be. The other one is using uh, attachment theory, which we'll probably talk a little bit more about as well because that's a a really key component to the whole welfare of the horse uh, process, that 
Scratching the horse and being able to rub a horse in the appropriate places helps the horse become less scared of you and helps you build up a bond. So there's several ways that we can do this, yeah. There's many ways. Okay. Which ones do you think are the most effective, though? From a riding point of view, negative reinforcement without a doubt. I think negative reinforcement is, from a riding point of view, I think that you'll be very, very lucky, and you would agree with me here, I think, Lennis, but you'd tell me your own thoughts. How would I possibly get a horse into the start box and get him to go around cross-country simply by using carrots? I think it would be fairly impossible. However, negative reinforcement is really, really clear. If we are able to apply an aid and then the pressure and release the pressure and train it, so it all happens within an instant with a trained horse. This all happens within a second. You apply the aid, you get a response, and you take it off. It all happens inside a second. And when you have that degree, and I'm going to use another word here, obedience, when you have that level of obedience, because the horse now understands that the cue means that he has to do an action and he does the action, and then you release it, gives you an enormous amount of power to be able to get the horse to do what you'd like it to do, whether it be cross-country or dressage or, or, or riding polo, it doesn't matter. But when the aid has to be sustained over a period of time, then it's not an aid anymore. And that's one of the things that I'm really big on in my teaching, as you would be as well, is that people that nagging with their leg the entire time are actually making their horse worse mm. little bit by little by little bit because they're, they're actually destroying the effectiveness of the aid. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Now, I know this question, it sort of seems very obvious, but just to make it clear, you know, for our listeners who this might be the first chat they've ever listened to, and they think, what do you mean, you know, with negative, re- like we're talking a lot of things, this whole negative reinforcement is good. And, but what if we talk about rewarding a horse, what's the actual aim of rewarding a horse? Okay, the- That's a really simple question. So the aim of rewarding a horse is to create drive. When we say create drive, what I simply mean is create, can I say, the ambition or the desire in the horse to seek that. Now, it might be the release of pressure. It could be the uh, presentation of food. But what you do is you're saying to the horse, when I do this, immediately I'm going to do that. So you're actually going from, can I say, from from dark to light. So it becomes really transparent to the horse that this is what we'd like you to do. And it's really easy then for the horse to be able to discern that it would prefer to be in the light or prefer to re- re- receive food or would um, prefer not to be under pressure. Of course they would be. So it's actually about creating drive. That's what the centerpiece of uh, reward is all about, creating drive towards the outcome or the desired reaction. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know before that you, you had talked a little bit about timeliness. How critical is this timing in the reward process? The um, timing of the entire process is probably, can I say, more important than anything else. In other words, The application of the aid, so a small cue, so we call it a cue, which is like your indicator when you're driving your car. You're actually saying, I would like to go here. 
and then you follow it up by turning the steering wheel. From a horse's point of view, you're actually giving them an aid, which is always presented, and then straight away, you then if there's no reaction, then you back it up by increasing the pressure with your leg or your rein or whatever you're doing straight away. Again, timing is important because now the linkage between the cue and the negative reinforcement is critical. But this is the most important part, in my opinion, is that when the horse does the right action, you remove it. And as we always say, the pressure motivates the action, but what trains it and what creates the cue is the precise removal of it, and that's the reward. And that's why, you know, food rewards are um, important. So when you have somebody that just intermittently feeds their horses carrots or a minute later goes into the shed and then comes out and gives the horse a carrot because he's a good boy, it's completely irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything. It just now means that the horse now looks at the person as a food source. So they're, they're actually like a giant paddock. And so you end up sometimes being mauled by them because the horse actually then sees you as a food source potential, not because they've done an action. And that, therein lies a bit of a danger because then the horses become more oral and, you know, they can escalate into other things as well. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about the possible consequences of poor timing. So the, the concept, I'll, I'll just add a little bit more to that. The consequences of poor timing is confusion, and that is a really dangerous area because when we get confusion, we start getting erratic behaviours, and then people will say sentences such as, I don't know why he did this, he just did this out of the blue, but they don't realise that their timing was that poor, that there was a disassociation between the event of the correct action and the reinforcement. So now the horse is in conflict because every other time he's actually been rewarded by the release of pressure or food and now he doesn't. And this commonly happens when we start to change owners or riders or trainers. So if the timeliness between the two operators, we'll call them operators, that if they're uh, quite a bit different, the horse will show some conflict and then the new owner will say, oh, we've never done that before. Uh, the old owner will say, I've never seen him do that before. But it's only because the new owner was a little bit, can I say, not aware of the critical state of timing in the application of the negative reinforcement and the uh, release of pressure, um, to, give a, um, uh, to give an example, or the application or the illustration of food. And those things, they're, they're critical. They're so critical. And, of course, in the young horse, the context of these things is so so interesting. I, I did a, video, a little short video today that I'm going to try and put on my um, Train to Win page just to illustrate that when I put the lead rope through the eye of the ring, that when I wasn't standing in front of the horse, he didn't know to come forward. But then once I trained the pressure to become more obedient to pressure, then he took the opportunity to step forward and once I released it, I could actually get his nose to touch the post. But then when I changed the context and I stood on the offside, he still didn't know the answer. It was very interesting. So it doesn't take much to disrupt the boat if you're inconsistent with your timing, your pressure, or your context. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book 
101 careers in the horse industry is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. Earlier on, you did talk about attachment theory. So how does attachment theory relate to the reward process? Yeah. This, we've still got a long way to go in our research with the attachment theory and the value to it in terms of horse welfare. However, in the last 10 years, there has been massive inroads into it. We've actually already illustrated from scientific research that scratching the horse on the wither lowers his heart rate and produces chemicals that are more akin to um, being relaxed and tense. So we know basic things such as that. And they're a really valuable piece of information. So it means that, you know, and I'd like to say to all the listeners, if you really love your horse, scratch it before you pat it. And if you do wish to pat it, scratch it, pat it, and then scratch it. And that will then help you evolve patting into um, a positive thing rather than a negative thing. But really just trying to make sure that we can deliver exactly the right thing at the right time, we're, depends on whether we're riding the horse. If we're riding the horse, then probably the most rewarding thing that you can do for your horse is don't do any pressure. Because we know full well that anybody that rides a horse and they never pat their horse, they never say anything to their horse, they, they don't have much of an attachment to their horse, but they're really good at releasing their pressure, that horse will still perform every day for them and ride through all sorts of situations for that, just because of that. So attachment theory is really, really valuable, but when you combine that with really good training and and, and really important uh, positive and negative reinforcement principles, then you are going to have an even greater weapon. And that's where I, I think that we need to be going with racing. Racing is one of these things where it's actually really hard for us to be able to see when the horse is not under pressure, but we can make that more discernible. And I think to the public, we need to, and that's where the, the whole whip saga is actually coming into play at this point in our lives. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about negative reinforcement earlier. Now, I think you said one time that the scientist, and correct me if I'm wrong, the scientist who came out with the whole negative reinforcement wasn't English. So the native language wasn't English, and that's the way it got translated to say negative reinforcement. Is that correct, or have I got that wrong somewhere? That could be right, Glenn, but I wasn't sure whether I actually said that to you. It might have been someone else then, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, see, and that's why I said at the start of the interview, Negative is actually about detracting and positive is about adding. And, and whether it be positive punishment or negative punishment or positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, and it, it's, a, it's a fairly obscure world, this whole science thing. So 
it's not easy to understand at times. But I think the most important thing is to be aware of our timing, even as we've said in previous interviews, for the first good try and sponsor that. And 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 probably I I haven't gone um, far enough on about attachment theory, but having a horse that is not scared of you. And I went to a property today, and every single horse that I went to, and I saw seven seven of their horses today. Every single horse walked straight up to me and said to me, how are you going? Yes, look, it's fine. She does use food as a reward, and that's fine. However, the horses aren't scared of me, so I can work with that. Working with a scared horse, it's not easy, and we have to be all be very careful as coaches and trainers and riders when we're working with scared horses because they can be dangerous. They do erratic things, and as we always hear from the uh, you know, the media, for example, horses are unpredictable. No, horses aren't unpredictable. They become less predictable if they're scared. But our job is to make them less scared. And they're quite predictable. Otherwise, people like myself and, and, and thousands of others like you um, wouldn't be in this game if uh, random stuff happened all the time. So it's actually a complete misnomer, in my opinion. What's punishment then? Tell us about punishment. Punishment, um, punishment originally was, we were talking about, when we talk about punishment, we're talking about the removal of a reward. So in other words, punishment could be because you don't give the horse a reward. So you might not, you might not give it a carrot. So, or punishment could be making something using the pressure in an aversive way. So I think maybe you and I have talked about this a fair while ago with rearing in making um, the whole situation a little bit ugly while the front legs are in the air and then the instant the front legs hit the ground, do nothing. Um, And the same with bucking, doing a downward transition and then going forward again. Um, All these things, punishment, I like to keep punishment a fair bit clearer because punishment is used in not an easy way to understand all the time. I would like to put punishment, if it was up to me, I would put punishment in a box that was then unrelated to time. And the perfect example of that is I'm riding my horse into a jump. It refuses the jump. I'm in shock. I take two or three seconds to recover after I've gone around the horse's neck. I get back into the saddle. I turn him away from the jump, and then I give him three good whacks on the butt while he's actually not looking at the jump. That's punishment. That is classic punishment. And that has to stop. People should be fined for doing that. You know, doing things without timing. In other words, if you do something because the horse did something to you and it takes you, uh, you know, five seconds to recover and then you start getting into it, and we've all been in this place because it's all linked to emotion and also ego, that when we're in those situations, we feel we have to do something because we think it's the horse's fault, Glennis, and that's where we've gone wrong. How could it be the horse's fault? As I've said before, it's a horse. Yep, yep. So is there ever positive punishment? Yes, well, positive punishment is the addition of an aversive stimulus. So that's a really technical description. So the addition of, of an aversive stimulus so what we're saying is 
something that isn't very comfortable for the horse. So, you know, where do we draw the line here? And this is where it's actually, it actually gets hard for a lot of people to be able to stand the difference between negative reinforcement and um, positive punishment. So it's an area that the scientists actually, and I don't ever, I will never claim to be a scientist. I try to be the broker, if you understand what I mean, is that the addition of an, an aversive stimulus which makes a particular response less likely in the future, well, that's exactly what negative reinforcement does. So, you know, I mean, we can talk about words, but at the end of the day, if we are really good with our timing and we apply pressure, and I'll I'll give everybody a picture here. I've got a horse that I know that's going to rear when I do X, Y with it. So I'm riding it and I'm going to ride it away from its friend and it's going to rear because it doesn't want to go away from its friend. So I ride it away from its friend, knowing full well that it's going to rear. And while it's there, the classic one was years ago, we crack it over the head with an egg and make it think that banged into something and blood coming out. Well, eggs don't work because the horse's degree of insight into the egg is probably not as great as ours, so we'll leave that for the people that don't understand people uh, horses' insight. But really what we're trying to do here is that we, if we do something for the full duration of when the legs are off the ground until they're back on the ground again, and it could be yelling, it could be getting angry. It could be making a noise. It could be making a sight. But something a little aversive that isn't going to make the rear worse, then as soon as the front legs hit the ground again, we then switch back to what we're doing again, you will get a better outcome. So, you know, that's really the answer. The answer is actually being really good with your timing, really good with your pressure, and being not emotional about it. Because once you become emotional, you and I have talked about this a lot, once you become emotional, the very first thing that gets left out on the nature strip is timing, and that is the worst one to worst one to lose. When you uh, have no timing, you've actually lost the plot. You should dismount, go home, and have a cup of tea. Okay, okay. You know, I'm just thinking because we talked about inappropriate punishment, and you talked about a horse refusing a jump, and then the rider pulls the whip. A few seconds later, after the horse has already turned away from the jump, so the horse is, you know, just a bit worried about coming in the arena. They sort of not associating the refusal with the whip. Are there any other common examples just to draw people's attention to the fact that this is not helping the horse? What's some common examples of inappropriate punishment that riders or trainers would make? Good question, and I really like that question because I've got so many. But I think the one at the top of my list is. If he wants to go backwards, I'll make him go backwards. So in other words, the horse doesn't want to go forward, so they're going to make him go backwards. So they make him go backwards, or he bolts, so I'm going to kick him until he doesn't actually bolt anymore. And and people will say, oh, when I did this, it completely fixed it. I don't agree with that at all. And, and, and I can remember my, even my own father saying this, so if you've got a horse that bolts, then kick it and make it go faster until it's really tight until it go, can't go forward anymore. That's way too traumatic for the horse. We're, we're in 2020 here. Can we actually be a little bit smarter and listen to the science on this? At the end of the day, the reason the horse goes backwards and not goes forward is because the, the forward button isn't as available as the backwards button. End of story. The reason the horse bolts and keeps bolting is because 
the stop button has actually never been installed and probably nor is the go button. So the horse is completely in flight. We're losing the real cause of the problem and we're getting preoccupied with the symptom and we're going with that. So, for example, the horse wants to run backwards. So we pull on the run and say, you want to go backwards? I'll make you walk backwards all the way around 20-minute circle or whatever it is. The horses don't launch all of a sudden and then flat-out gallop forwards. They don't all of a sudden do that. You still have to get them going forward in some shape or form. And the reason they don't go forward is because the cue in that anxious state is not available. And that's something that I want to mention right now. And I've said this before in previous interviews. For the, so for the new listeners, this is a, an important point. If the horse is not relaxed, in other words, he's tense or he's scared or whatever he is, but he has tension in his body, the cues that are not well-trained are less available. So, in other words, if you have a cue that is so well-trained and has been reliable everywhere, that will be the cue that will get you out of trouble when all of a sudden uh, mayhem is breaking out everywhere, in a thunderstorm, in a hailstorm, amongst the... Uh, the the, the, the you know horses galloping by you, which I've been in those situations in thunderstorms, hailstorms, and um, uh, earthquakes, and all those things. I've ridden horses in all those situations. The most reliable responses are the best trained ones, not the poorly trained ones. And how do we know a poorly trained response from a good one? Simply whether it's obedient or not. That's not difficult. And the diffic- and the definition of obedient is the application of the aid is synonymous or occurs at the same time as the action. So in other words, you apply the aid, the horse gives you the action, you release the aid. It all happens within a quarter of a second. And that's what a trained aid is, and that's what makes it obedient. And they will be the most reliable ones when the horse is confused or scared or becoming dangerous, all all in the same basket. Yep. John, this has been great. We, we make a lot of mistakes, don't we? And I, I'm sure that going back, you know, and, and the more research there is, the more we can understand horses. You know, like you said, even attachment theory, we're still getting to understand that, but we're understanding a lot more. If we continue to make these mistakes, you know, the consequences, they're not good. No, they're not good. And, and I'm actually going to read you, I'm going to read you the definition of punishment. And this is out of a book that was um, actually written by Paul McGreevy and Andrew. And this is um, punishment. And I think that it says it pretty well in clear language. Punishment, the presentation of an adversive stimulus that decreases the likelihood of a response. So it decreases the likelihood of a response. Now, we have to understand that, don't we? In the case of negative punishment, the removal of a reinforcing stimulus or Punishment is often used incorrectly in horse training when not immediately immediately contingent with the offending response. In other words, we don't even have the timing right. So the incorrect use of punishment can lower an animal's motivation to trial a new response. So that means what, what the scientists are saying here is the animal is, is going to not not likely trial a new response, so he's less likely to give you the right answer. This is really important to understand, and and it's all because the timing. If the timing wasn't right, you're going to decrease the likelihood of it. But people 
feel as if they have to dominate horses. And, um, you know, it's not about that. We've gone way beyond that. We're now in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's been the timing all the way through. You know, you've said that if you're going to teach them that they've done the right thing, your timing has to be spot on. The horse is only going to relate to, to anything if it's timely. So continually, all the way through, you talked about the timing of the reward. And Glennis, this is one of the things that I would really like us to be able to get into in our instructor's exams and get into get into this sort of theory because it, why would you coach unless you understand these basic principles? I don't know how people get away with it. I really don't. Yep, yep. I know, I know. Uh, you know, you start off with the coaches when they first start and they say some things and you think you've just got it wrong. You've just not the basic understanding. Yeah. So they need to get that basic understanding of horse behaviour before they even go on and do anything else. And this is even just to do with dominant and submissive horses. We've still got, you know, people talking about the pecking order and how the pecking order is like one through to ten in a paddock. And it's not that. It's the individual, yeah. So that people have just got to understand that behaviour a little bit more. But the only way they can do that is through education, John, and I think that's exactly what we, um, we're doing. So, so I think we're sort of contributing and just making people be more aware of, of um, the, the research that we know a lot more into horses now than, you know, even, even every year there's just more and more research. Oh, absolutely. And, and look how far we've come in 20 years, Glenis, you know. And I mean, I've said the, the evolution of equitation science and, and all the rest of it. I think that it's actually fantastic. And I have to say the entire community that I'm involved with is such a positive community. We're, we're, we're not about trying to say, oh, no, you should have done this better. But we're actually pointing out um, the next stages of the process. In other words, saying, yeah, well, okay, well, that's obviously at this stage. And then won't it be exciting when we go to this point rather than being critical? And I think we can all contribute to that. And that's, that's the beauty of what you're doing here um, with the program is that you have access to so many people in so many places across the planet and they don't necessarily have to come to me. They can actually hear this information, gel it in their head and understand clearly that unless they have some basic scientific principles in the back of their mind when they're looking at things or studying things or training, that, that it's not hard. It's really, really easy. Yep. And I think, you know, before I say goodbye, um, I just want to remind people that, you know, one of your sayings, a well-trained horse is a safe horse. So um, I think that's, that's just a really good thing to remember. Jonna, people would like to contact you. What's the best way? Is it Train to Win, your Facebook page? Yeah, Train to Win Facebook page and, and um, also uh, just uh, Jonna McLean on my uh, Facebook page and my phone number's there and people send me messages and all that sort of stuff. So... Yep, that's the easiest and the best way um, is uh, good, old, good old social media. <laughs> and if you did miss those details, just go to horsechats.com and search for Jonna, search for McLean, and um, you'll find his contact details at the bottom of every page. So thanks, Jonna. Thanks again. And we'll chat to you again next month and looking for, I don't know what you're going to be talking about, but I'm sure it'll be interesting. So thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, thank you, Glenis. That was really good. I think that was a really important discussion that we had tonight. So thank you. For sure. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. 
If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 